Let's turn now in our scriptures to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, we'll read verses 1 to 7. Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 7. Therefore, let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said in a certain place concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that you have given to us. We ask you to help us to think upon these promises and to cling on to them by faith. May we unite the Word of God that we hear with faith. Produce faith in us that we might experience your rest, your eternal rest, and all the glories that accompany that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we know that we are continuing in this passage this section from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and through chapter 4, verse 13, which is a long warning segment, a long warning passage in this letter to the Hebrews. These are Christians who have embraced the true faith. However, they have been disturbed. They have been disturbed by afflictions and hardships, doubts, false teachings, persecutions. They have been afflicted by these means of the world, to distract them from the true gospel. Well, here our apostle shows them that they must not ever reject Christ, shows them that they should have Christ set before them at all times, and that their only way of salvation, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their afflictions, their only way of salvation, eternal life, rest, forgiveness of sins, is in Christ. So there is no other place to turn. There is no other one who can deliver them from their sins. He emphasizes in this section that there is no life apart from Christ, but only death, only the wrath of God, only punishment if we turn away from Christ. Well, when we think about this topic, and in the passage we just read, we notice that he says in verse 1 that a promise has been announced. In verse 2, good news has been preached. And in verse 6, good news, he repeats that. As well, he speaks of rest. Who wants to be in toilsome labor all the time? Who wants to work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? Who wants to work in that sense, in the physical sense? Nobody. Nobody wants to be that exhausted and fatigued from work. And yet, God is offering, in a spiritual sense, rest. Something that is even better than the physical labor that we experience, but the spiritual labor. He's offering something good, 
to all of us, to all who hear this word of God. And what is amazing that we find in this passage is that people can hear of spiritually good things. They can hear of the love of God. They can hear of the grace of God. They can hear of the mercy of God. They can hear of the great patience of God, His long-suffering. They can hear of everything that God has in store for those who believe in Him. They can hear of eternal dwelling places. My Father's house has many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, there you may be also. They hear uh, of these promises and good news of the gospel, that their sins can be forgiven, that God's animosity and wrath towards us is turned away. They hear that there is no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more evil in the life to come. They hear of all of these wonderful truths in the good news, in the promise of God, in the word of God. And yet, stunningly, people turn away from it. People hear of all these things and they do not want it. They do not want to believe it. They don't want to embrace it. They have things that come up into their eyes that cloud their sight. They have things that come into their ears that stop up their ears. This is what happens to people. They hear of good things, yet they don't want to believe it. They turn away from it. Why? Because they have their mind set on earthly things. Not heavenly things, but earthly things. Things of the world, the things that their friends are chasing after, all of their passions and their, and their lusts and their covetousness, the things that they desire, this is what they pursue. And they do it with the crowd of people. They join the crowd, the bandwagon, to pursue the things of the world. And what does it do? It does not allow them, it does not permit them to believe in the promises of God, which are unseen things, which are things of the life to come, things that we do not see right now. This is the problem that people have. But it's not just our problem, it is a perennial problem. In days past, many days past, and even in days future, this will always be the human predicament. It will always be the human predicament. Here our apostle explains that the generation of the wilderness, under the leadership of Moses, experienced the same afflictions, the same problems, the same temptations that we also face. And yet he exhorts us by that negative example not to behave like them, but to pursue the things of God, to cling on to heavenly things, spiritual things, unseen things. Let's do that. Let's see how he explains it. Verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Therefore, based on the warnings of the previous passage, and based on the fact that though millions upon millions of people were delivered from Egypt, delivered at the Red Sea, crossed the Red Sea, went into the wilderness, and was promised the land of Canaan, upon millions upon millions of people hearing that, only a handful actually believed the message of God. Don't let that happen. What happened to them, don't let that happen to us. Therefore, he says, let us fear. Let us fear. This term fear 
is really a word that people eschew constantly. They don't want to speak of the fear of God. But he's exhorting us. He says, let us. Let us fear. Let us fear. What is biblical fear and why is it so important? Well, firstly, this is not the only time that he speaks of fear or he arouses us to fear God, to fear God in a true and right way. He does so in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, when he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And in Hebrews 12, 29, he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. When we see fire, we don't want to be near it because we know that fires are consuming and that they can destroy us. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to fear God and to fear God with trembling. We notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, just as we read in Hebrews 4, 1, there's a promise. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God is our goal, to fear God in that way. And also we have a model. We have a model of Titus in 2 Corinthians 7, 15. Titus and the Corinthians. Titus and the Corinthians. Titus was a faithful minister of God, and when he came to the Corinthians, notice how they are commended. 2 Corinthians 7, 15. And his affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. The Corinthians received the messenger of God, the man of God, sent by the apostle to meet up with the Corinthians. They received him with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. That is, they knew he was a man of God and they needed to deal with matters that he was addressing with them with fear and trembling, and it was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. He's commending them for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. We must all please him, and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. One day Christ will judge us all, and he will recompense us, reward us, according to what we have done, whether good or evil. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest, made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. He says, knowing that there is this day of judgment that awaits all of us, we fear the Lord and we persuade men. We persuade them to live an honest and good life in all regards. This is what he exhorts us to do, to keep the day of judgment before us and have a true fear of God. We continue also in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our own salvation must be worked out with fear and trembling. Not working for it, not earning salvation by works, but he says work out, demonstrate, manifest, produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life with fear and trembling. Not with the happy-go-lucky attitude, not with a nonchalant attitude, but with fear and trembling, we have to tighten our belt and live the Christian life. See what pleases God and seek to obey Him accordingly. And one more place we can, we can consult is 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. He says, We address as Father, do we not? Jesus taught us to pray our Father. When we pray to him as our Father, what should we include in our thinking about who God is as Father? He is an impartial judge who will judge us according to each one's work. Therefore, we ought to conduct our lives in fear during our time upon the earth. He expects us to consider God as our Father, not as a grandfather, not as a clown, not as a big buddy in the sky, nothing like that, not as a candy man, but as a father who should be feared. Whatever he says we should do, we should live a holy life. This is what the apostle has exhorted us in Hebrews 4.1, to have this kind of fear of God, to live our life in the gospel of Christ in, in this way. Further, he says, why should there be fear? He says, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. While a promise remains, the promise is standing, the promise is delivered, the promise is heard. You, we all know what these promises are. The ultimate promise of being with God forever and glorifying him and enjoying him forever, that is the ultimate promise. But there are all kinds of other uh, aspects to that promise. So while that promise is delivered and you hear it, you know it, you have heard it with your own ears, you have read it with your own eyes in the Bible, while you know this promise remains, what if, with all of the good things that that promise entails, what if you do not attain it? What if you do not grasp it? What if you are really a casual listener to the promise and you don't really believe it? is his point. While the promise remains, and it may not remain with you forever, it may not remain with you until you die. Why? Because there are many people who hear it and walk away, such as in the parable of the sower and the seeds. 
In Matthew 13, 1 to 23, Jesus taught us that when the word of God is preached, it falls on four different kinds of soil. And it's only the fourth soil that produced any fruit, any fruit of the Holy Spirit. The first three did not. And in the case of the first one, they hear it, but then it's quickly taken away by the devil. So the promise does not remain with them anymore. They forget about it altogether. They're so consumed with the world that they don't think about it. That's the way he's saying, while a promise remains, whoever hears it, at the moment he hears it, that should be his day of salvation. That should be his day of faith. That should be his day of repentance. While he hears this good news, while he hears the promise, he should repent then and there. He should believe then and there. Not hold off and not wait, but immediately, while it remains. While it remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Any one of you? Any one of you? He has many who have followed, many who have heard, many who have said, I believe. But he also says, it could be that any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Any one of you. That means that in a group of people, all of whom who say they are believers in Christ, it could be the case that one of them or two of them or any number of them truly don't believe in Christ. Though they imagine they do, though they say they do, they profess that they do, but they are false professors. They are false professors. They profess so, but they don't truly confess. They're not true confessors, but false professors of the faith. So he says, watch out. Make sure that that's not you. And if that is you at the moment, turn from sin. Believe in Christ. Believe he died for your sins. Repent of your sins. And follow Christ with your whole life. Let a man deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me, Jesus said. Luke 9.23 He further says that you should seem to have come short of it. To come short of it. As though you are racing, you are running, you're running for the prize, but you don't finish, you don't pass the finish line. You don't reach that part. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be that kind of a person. If the promise is held out there, then make sure that you finish the course. You go all the way to the very end. Don't come short of it. For he says, there might be those of you who seem to have come short of it. Who seem to have come short of it. That means that there are people, for example, in the time of the wilderness, in the time of Moses, remember what pronouncements and judgments God pronounced on them in Numbers chapter 14. They rebelled, the ten spies, they demoralized the rest of the soldiers, and they were all demoralized, and God announced that they would all die. The ten spies died immediately, and the 600,000 soldiers, they were going to die over a period of 40 years. And whoever else they influenced among the rest of the congregation, they were all going to die in the wilderness for 40 years. Dying in the wilderness was a sign and a symbol of them not possessing and inheriting eternal life. Correct? This is what it said in Hebrews 3 and 4. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. 
it was a sign that they did not inherit eternal life. God was not well pleased with them. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13 says the same thing. With several examples of the wilderness generation and how they were evil, they craved evil, and they paid the penalty for their evil. And he tells us not to be like them. And not to think we're better than them, that it could not happen to us. So the wilderness generation, they died as a symbol that they also went to hell or would go to hell. But who else died in the wilderness? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam also died in the wilderness. They did not go into the land of Canaan. But did they go to heaven or did they go to hell? Were they saved or were they unsaved? For those who have a casual view of things, you might think, oh, they also went to hell. They are also unsaved people. No. No. That's why he says, it seems that way with them, but it's not really that way. So we need to know that Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, and others who died, like them, in the wilderness, that they were truly saved, yet they died. But in the case of Moses and Aaron, we know clearly that their penalty was because of their sin. They died in the wilderness because they committed a sin against God that God said, because of this sin, you will not enter the land of Canaan. Which means that God can and does punish believers now in a physical sense, though they are saved. But even Moses regretted not being able to enter the land of Canaan. And he's telling us here in Hebrews 4.1, don't seem to come short of it. Don't be like the wilderness generation and don't even be like Moses and Aaron and Miriam who died in the wilderness and it brings confusion. It brings uncertainty to the situation. Don't allow that to happen. Be completely certain. Be sure that you are saved and you're living a life that pursues God, producing the fruit of the Spirit. Make certain about it. Don't have any kind of cloudiness in your thinking about this issue. Verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The first part of the verse expresses the fact that we, that is, their generation, the generation of the Hebrew Christians, had good news preached to them. They had the gospel preached to them. And also, the generation of Moses had the gospel preached to them. The good news or the gospel, just as they also. Just as they also. This reminds us of the fact that there is only one gospel, one true gospel, only one way of salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, from the time of Adam until the time of the return of Christ, there is only one gospel, one way of salvation, called the good news or gospel. The term gospel means good news. They had it in Moses' generation, preached to them. Moses was a proclaimer, a messenger of this gospel to them. And the same with the Hebrew Christians, and the same with our generation. It's always the same gospel, good news that is preached. And that gospel is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 
verses 3 to 4. Or even in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. That's believing in our, the Lord Jesus Christ that he died and rose again on our behalf for our forgiveness. Then we will be saved. This is the one gospel that Moses anticipated and he preached to the people. And it's the same gospel that we preach today. After all, it does say in Hebrews eleven twenty six that Moses regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews eleven twenty six. Moses looked ahead to the reproach of Christ, his humiliation and crucifixion. He looked ahead to the reproach of Christ, and he wanted that rather than the treasures of Egypt, rather than being a prince in Egypt, rather than living in the court of Pharaoh with all of his servants, all of the officials serving him. No, he gave up all that in order to be a leader of the people of God because he had his mind on Christ, the reproach of Christ. And as Christ was willing to experience reproach for Moses' salvation, Moses was willing to experience reproach at the hands of Pharaoh and everybody else who would spite him and seek to persecute him and put him to death. He was willing to do that because he regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches, greater riches than the riches of Egypt. One gospel from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, only one, faith in Christ. This also reminds us of this this word good news or gospel reminds us that we cannot understand the good news part of it unless we understand the bad news part of it. Correct? When we don't know what bad news is, how can we know what good news is? Because if you hear good news all the time, you will be so inundated and satiated with good news, you won't know what bad is. If people are hearing good all the time, they don't know what bad is, so they must know what bad is. Well, what is the bad news part that makes the good news good news? The bad news is that we are sinners. We're alienated from God. We need His forgiveness. Otherwise, we experience His wrath and punishment on the day of judgment. That's the bad news. It must be preached whenever the gospel is preached. If that's not preached, if that is not front and center, if people don't understand that, then how can they know that forgiveness is good? They won't think that forgiveness of sins is good if they don't realize that they are sinners. They'll only realize that the good news of forgiveness of sins is good if they know that they are sinners, that they are alienated and hostile toward God in their natural condition. Then it will be good news. What's amazing is the people of Israel in the wilderness, they had good news proclaimed, and yet they rejected it. They did not have their mind on heavenly things, but they had their mind on earthly things. Colossians 3.2 says, Let us set our minds on heavenly things, not on the things which are on the earth. On heavenly, not earthly. This is what happened to them. It wasn't good to them. It wasn't good to them, so they threatened to put Moses to death by stoning him. It wasn't good, so they bickered against Moses. They were bitter against Moses constantly and made his life for 40 years, difficult. From age 80 to 120, they made his life difficult for 40 years. 
with all of their complaints and grumblings against him because they were looking at food. They were looking at prosperity. They were looking at earthly things. We want the leeks and the onions and the garlics and the fish that we used to eat in Egypt. We don't want to eat this manna. We're tired of looking at this manna, they said, even though that was miraculous manna. It was food from heaven. It was miraculous food. And even when they received quail, miraculously God brought quail for a, a full one month so that they could eat meat. All of this miraculous food, and yet they bickered and grumbled against God and the men of God who were delivering the message. They didn't look at it as good news because they were blind by earthly things. Furthermore, in verse 2, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. What's the problem when people hear the word of God? One of the basic problems is indicated right here. And he's put, indicating just this because his emphasis is to put the blame on the hearer. He's putting the blame on the hearer and trying to arouse in the hearer the need for faith, the need to believe. So this is why he mentions the one aspect that is essential. When the word of God is preached, it says they heard, it did not benefit or profit those who heard. Why? It's not enough just to listen. It's not enough just to show up. It's not enough to pretend. It's not enough to appear to be a believer. It's not enough to just listen to it, to hear it. You have to couple what you hear with faith. You have to actually believe it. He says it was not united by faith in those who heard. Not united or mixed with faith. It was not coupled or joined with faith. What they heard, the word of God, the word of truth, the gospel of Christ was not joined by faith in Christ, by faith in the word of God. They didn't do that. That's what was missing to them. James tells us in James chapter 1 about this kind of problem. James chapter 1, verse 22. He says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. James has two categories. You're either a hearer, a forgetful hearer, or you are a doer. It's one or the other. And he's saying that we should not be a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Because those who do not do what they hear, which includes believing in what they hear, because that is the first uh, aspect of obedience. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believing is putting faith in what you hear. That's the first command that we need to obey. Repent and believe in the gospel. He says if we don't do that, we delude ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. We're pretending and we're comforting ourselves, consoling ourselves with falsehoods. We're consoling ourselves with the imagination that we're just fine. Everything's okay between me and God. 
and I can go on my merry way. I can have my, my cake and eat it too. I can come to church. I can listen to the word. But, you know, those people, they take those things too seriously. They, those people are, are fanatics. And so I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to listen to the extent that I can console myself that I'm okay between me and God. But I'm going to live my life after this, after this one hour meeting. I'm going to go and live my life as I please. So they delude themselves. They delude themselves into thinking that the word that they heard was not really serious, was not really true, and the consequences, and even the promises, the good things about it, are not really true. It's all imagination. It's all fabrication. It's all a myth. So I'm going to live as I please, but my conscience does prick me once in a while, so I'll come to church once in a while. See, they delude themselves. This is what people do. He's saying, don't be like that. Make what you hear united by faith. Believe it. Believe it. What is there not to believe that's good and right in the Bible? It has been proven again and again to be historically reliable, without contradiction, with a unified message, with prophecies of the Old Testament made hundreds of years over a span of many, many centuries in the Old Testament to predict the coming of Christ, whose predictions by the prophets were fulfilled and announced by the apostles, not in a secret and dark, dingy corner, nothing like that, but openly, on the rooftop, in the, in the temple, at the Areopagus in Athens. They proclaimed everything openly because the things that were done were done openly, in full view, so that those who saw and heard could be consulted and corroborated for the fact that those things related to Jesus' life and the gospel are indeed true. So we should believe it. We should believe it. Isn't it better and easier to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, a miracle by the God of the universe, than to believe that our world came into being because of Martians? Right? Did our world come into being by Martians or some other space creatures, space aliens? That's ridiculous to believe that and not by an eternal, omnipotent God. So on and on, people choose to believe in all of the things that are ridiculous and preposterous because they don't want to submit to the Bible. So submit to the Bible. Believe in what the Bible says. And what is the benefit? Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere or in a certain place concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day, seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. He's saying in verses 3 to 5 a few things here. One is, we who have believed, truly believed, enter that rest. There is a benefit. There is profit. There is something good that results in true belief. We'll enter his rest. And what is this rest that he keeps mentioning? What is it? For he says in verse 3, Just as he has said, as I sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not. He didn't say Moses shall not. He, didn't, he did not say David shall not. He said they shall not. If they will not, then, as it says in verse 6, it remains for some to enter it. 
Okay, so if they shall not enter the rest, but some will enter the rest, who are the some, and what is that rest, and what is the means to that rest, entering that rest? Who are the some? The some are those who have faith, who have been granted faith and put their faith in the good news, the gospel of Christ, for their forgiveness of sins. They enter that rest, which means that we enter that rest the moment we believe in Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have that rest. We have it. They don't. The others who don't are those who disbelieve, those who do not have the faith. They will not enter it. So it requires faith in us in order to enter that rest. Further, what happens to those who do not enter the rest? He says in verse 3 and in verse 7, he says, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, sorry, he had also said it there in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. That is, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Their penalty is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a shorthand way of saying that they will go to eternal punishment. They will go to the lake of fire. It's another way of expressing that. The wrath of God, his animosity and hatred towards those who refuse to repent of sin will be punished and he will inflict his wrath upon them. That's what happens to them, but not to us when we believe. We enter the rest of God. Well, what is this rest? Our apostle will, in verses 4, in verses four to 6, he will explain that this rest is not the Sabbath day rest. It's not the Sabbath day rest. And then next time, uh, when we study this passage, in verses 8 and following, he'll speak of Joshua, and he will say the rest he's talking about is not the rest of Canaan or Canaanite rest. It's not the Canaanite inheritance, the land of Canaan, the land of promise that he's speaking of. Because both the Sabbath and the land of promise, the land of Canaan, were two symbols, types, signs, outlines, to show us that we should seek for eternal rest, eternal life. In Exodus chapter 32, 12 to 17, twice Moses called the Sabbath day a sign. He called it a sign. And that's what he is referring to here in Hebrews chapter 4. He's alluding to the fact that we're not talking about the Sabbath rest, the rest that God instituted on the seventh day when he rested from the time of creation, the seventh day of creation. Because if he rested, why is he inviting us to enter his rest, Sabbath day rest? That doesn't make any sense. How is Sabbath day rest going to give me eternal life in and of itself? How can participation with God in the Sabbath day rest itself give me eternal life? He's saying, no, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. And regarding the seventh day, he said in Genesis 2.2, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So it's not that kind of rest that we are invited to experience. They were already experiencing the Sabbath day rest, many of them. Those who did not believe, they were experiencing and enjoying that weekly rest on the seventh day all the time. So that's not the key to eternal life. The key is 
what the Sabbath day signifies. What it signifies, and that's what he means, my rest. My rest. It's not Sabbath rest, which is the ultimate goal of all people who hear the gospel, but it is heavenly rest, eternal rest, the rest of God, his rest, my rest, however we want to say it. It's what God possesses, where God dwells, do we want to be where God dwells, is his point. You, God does not work, he does not exert himself, he does not toil, he does not sweat, he does not sleep, he does not eat, he doesn't do any of these things. So do we not want to enjoy that kind of communion with God where God dwells? That is the rest he means here. This is the rest that Moses preached, that David preached in Psalm 95, that even Joshua preached in his lifetime, which we'll see next time. Joshua also preached like this. They all preached this way. Even Jeremiah understood this. Jeremiah the prophet, who lived about 900 years after Moses and about 400 years after David. Jeremiah the prophet, in a famous passage, Jeremiah 6.16, Jeremiah says that rest is possible in his generation. And he's not talking about the Sabbath. He says, Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. But you shall find rest for your souls. Jeremiah knew the symbolism of the Sabbath rest. Jeremiah knew the symbolism of the Canaanite rest. He knew that those were symbols of heavenly rest, rest for our souls. This is what Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. If we are weary and heavy laden by the burden of our sin, if we are heavy laden by the burden of our sin, by our dead works, our dead conscience, our evil conscience, we know we are guilty and we are burdened with that guilt. How are we going to have any relief, any rest from the toil that that burden of guilt places on us? In Christ. You shall find rest for your souls. Forgiveness of sins is held out in Christ. That's the rest that Jesus meant that Jeremiah meant, Moses, and all the others. That's the rest that he has in store here for us. So let's pursue it. Let's have faith in that. Let's pursue it wholeheartedly. Verse 6, we pick up in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them fail to enter because of disobedience. What was the cause here? He says the cause was disobedience. Disobedience caused some of the people of the past not to enter the rest of God, the eternal rest. Remember from last time, we learned that the Bible often presents unbelief and disobedience as synonyms. As it did in chapter 3, verse 18, it says those who were disobedient and then because of unbelief, they did not enter. 3.18 and 19, at the end of the last chapter, they were disobedient, 
and they were unbelievers. And why? Because when we hear the gospel, there is a command, there is an imperative, repent and believe, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. If we don't repent and believe, we are disobedient. And what is causing that disobedience but unbelief? We don't listen or we don't believe what we heard, therefore we, we don't obey it. Because we don't believe, we don't obey. And if we don't obey what we heard, we are disobedient. And disobedience will cost us our soul. Disobedience costs our soul. There's need of clarification when we use this word obedience because these days we have many people when they hear the word obey or obedience in the churches, they think that it's legalism. Legalism, they think, is coupled with obedience. When actually, if anybody is following the Bible, he is not a legalist. Those who follow the Bible and obey the Bible, they are not legalists. They are godly. They are holy. They are growing. They are mature. They want the solid fruit of the Word. That's what the Bible means when it says obey. When it says to obey the law of Christ or the law of liberty, as we read in James 1, 22-25, when we are obeying the law of Christ or the law of liberty that's in the Bible, that's not legalism. That's not salvation by works. No. That is manifesting to God, giving evidence to God and to all of us who see who we really are. We produce evidence that we belong to Him. And it's, that is shown in our obedience. The people who are legalists, the true legalists, are those who add a tradition of man, a teaching of man, in addition to the Bible, while all the while claiming that it does not contradict the Bible. They add a tradition of man that is not in the Bible, a teaching of man that's not in the Bible, while at the same time saying... It does not contradict the Bible. And this happens everywhere. This happens in large denominations. It happens in small denominations. It happens in large churches. It happens in small churches. It happens everywhere. It happens in the, at the lectern in academia. It happens in the pulpit. It happens everywhere. That people erect false teachings based on the wisdom of man, the tradition of man, the teaching of man, to contradict the Bible. When they do that, and they project that if you don't do this or that according to what they have invented, then you are disobeying God, they are the legalists. They are the legalists, and we should not listen to them. We should not obey them. None of us should be that way, and none of us should succumb to that. That is actual legalism. Then, a further clarification, the people who charge those who want to obey the Bible, the law of Christ, the law of liberty, with legalism, they are sometimes licentious. They are sometimes libertines or libertarians, a spiritual libertarian, which means they want to be able to say they are Christians, they believe the gospel, they believe in Christ without having any need to obey Christ. They want to be able to call Jesus Lord, Lord, but not do the things that I say, Luke 6, 46. They want to be able to say Jesus is Lord without obeying their Lord in the true biblical way. 
So they want to claim to be Christians, but live as they please. That's not, that's not biblical. And though, those kinds of people will accuse those who want to follow the Bible as being legalists. That's not true either. Whoever follows the straight path of the Bible, not turning to the right as a legalist, and not turning to the left as a libertine, he is not doing wrong. He is following God faithfully. So let's not turn to the right or to the left. And then finally, verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time. Well, it was in the time of Moses, about 1500 to 1400 BC. Moses lived to be 120 years old. During that period that God announced that they would not enter his rest, that they would die in the wilderness. Moses preached the truth to them, the true gospel. But then David, preaching to his own generation in Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the day of the wilderness, as in the day of Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. Why is it that David, who lived 500 to 400 years after Moses, he lived about 1000 BC, why is it that David would say, Today, you, my generation, don't behave like that generation? And also, why is it that our apostle here in the book of Hebrews who lived a thousand years after David, could also say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why? Because this hardening and this gospel, this is possible in every generation. It's possible that they can believe the gospel in Moses' time or reject the gospel. They could believe the gospel in David's time or reject the gospel. They could believe the gospel in the time of our apostle, Hebrews chapter 4, believe it or reject it, which is also true in our generation. There are some who will obey, and they will have the blessing of God. They will enter his rest. But then there are others who will hear it and walk away from it and say, I don't want that. That's foolish. Whatever. They won't believe it. They'll disobey it, and they will, therefore, experience the wrath of God. They will provoke him to wrath. And the warning is, do not be like them. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden. But may our hearts all, all of our hearts, be softened and all of our loved ones. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.